Welcome to yet another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Chris Stroud and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is brought to you in part by the generous underwriting of CMF Curo. Learn more at www.mycatholichealthcare.org. Live your Catholic faith in your health care with CMF Curo. Today, our guests will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Joining us will be our very own Dr. Tom McGovern with a focus on what dermatology is and does and is not and does not, and maybe some useful tidbits to help you with concerns about anything related to skin. But before we dive into those amazing questions, let's look at our medical trivia question of the day. Category, wrinkles. It takes about an hour, or we should say, if it takes about an hour of sun exposure for you to get a sunburn, how long does it take for the same sunlight to cause skin damage that causes permanent wrinkling? So about an hour for a sunburn, how long just for permanent wrinkling? You think about it. Well, you'll have to listen to the end of the show to get the answer, and we'll be right back after the break. And we're back with Dr. Doctor, and today we are going to have a wonderful day, a wonderful interview with our resident dermatologist. And, you know, we, we've got a lot to cover, and he probably goes without an introduction, but I do have an introduction, so I'm going to go through it. Uh, this is my friend, Dr. Tom McGovern, who you hear on the show all the time. He did his undergrad at Michigan Tech University in biology, went to medical school at the Mayo Clinic, never heard of that place, in Rochester, Minnesota, internship near Augusta, Georgia at Fort Gordon, and then residency in Aurora, Colorado at the Fitzsimmons Army Medical Center. He did a fellowship after that at Yale University. Uh, that's another one I've never heard of. Um, and he is a dermatologist, most surgeon, part owner of Fort Wayne Dermatology Consultants since January of 2000. Uh, in his free time, he is the chairman of the Young Member Advisory Committee at the Catholic Medical Association, where he works with young physicians in practice. I remember him serving as a mentor for me even while I was in training before this committee was formed even. And uh, he works with fellow residents and medical students. He's also married to Sally, who's a wonderful lady. She's a true Wisconsin cheesehead, born in Green Bay and raised on a dairy farm. So if you meet her, be sure to ask her about that. He's got seven children and Believe it or not, I'm not sure if he has any free time or not, but he's here with us today. I'm glad we got you, Tom McGovern. Thank you for being with <laughs> Thanks, us. Thanks, Andrew. It's so fun to be in person with the three of us, not on a screen. It's great. Yeah, we could never Zoom again, and that would be too soon. Oh, <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, so we, we talked about a lot of specialties. Uh, you know, we've gone through a list of some of the more common ones. We talked about, you know, real medical specialties, and so now we're yes. left to talk about dermatology. That's all that yes. was left. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> people said, so what are you, like a cosmetician, Dr. McGovern? And, and it's, you know, doctor in air quotes. <laughs> yeah. So, Andrew, you were in medical school and residency. What was your first dermatologic exposure? Man, that's a great question. You know, I'd have to pull back for that. The, the, the biggest thing with dermatology is recognizing rashes and thinking up different Latin names for each of them. <laughs> and they've actually got a huge advantage on all the other specialties because nobody else speaks Latin like dermatologists <laughs> do. I don't know how many prereqs they have in Latin, actually, but you can make up whatever you want, and it's the name of a different rash. Oh, one of my favorite... Uh, disease names. It's this little, when you get a yeast infection between your fingers, Erosio blastomycetica interdigitalis. I mean, yeah, it's great. It's an art, and we've got it. Very descriptive. <laughs> Almost, uh, it reminds me a little bit of dealing with our colleagues in radiology. Oh, you yeah. Know, a radiologist would never say there's a car in the parking lot. <laughs> they would say there's a steel-based structure that appears to have four rubber circular things uh, on all the corners. I mean, they would describe it to the team, but they wouldn't just say, guys, it's a car. Um, yeah, dermatology makes me think of that. I didn't meet any dermatologists when I was in medical school or residency. I don't, I don't think, or if I did, I don't remember. But everybody loves to make fun of dermatologists until they need one. That's right. Um, and I can remember in residency on an internal medicine rotation, whenever there was a funky rash, we didn't know what it was. We just knew it wasn't good, and we needed to find somebody that knew what it was. 
we would go find a dermatology uh, attending a resident, and they would come tell us exactly what it was. Well, I, I remember, Chris, I think your your joke that you introduced me to for dermatology was hurry up and treat it before it goes away. <laughs> no, and then there's more. If it's wet, dry it. If it's dry, wet it. And hurry up and treat it before it goes away on its own. The first yeah. two are, are true. The last one? Not so much. <laughs> could be true. <laughs> dermatology, in, in all uh, honesty, whenever you're a baby medical student, dermatology is what a lot of people want to grow up and be, but it is ultra competitive. So you really do get the cream of the crop um, as far as people who do very well in school and are very attentive to the intricacies of specialty where there's a lot of specialties out there where they do something very well, just a few things. Dermatology, you need to know like textbooks on textbooks of different rashes because they do, although some treatments may overlap, they all have different courses. And so they are the people who are encyclopedias of rashes. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And then what's serious and what's not serious? Because sometimes they're really serious skin things. And those of us who aren't in the skin business can think, oh, it's nothing. It's just a rash. And it may be some harbinger of some really serious you know, medical condition. We feel silly when our dermatology colleagues come and tell us that. I, I had a patient just recently, actually, who presented to a dermatologist for a rash. And I got to meet her after that. And the rash basically um, told the dermatologist that this is, she likely has a cancer that's undiagnosed, go find a cancer. Wow. And then that, the patient came to me after that. So as much as we like to tease them, dermatology is a huge thing. It's maybe the largest organ in your body, right? <laughs> Depending on who you ask. You know, most of, the, most of the skin things I see, it's attached to a woman who's pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> and most of the time I find myself saying, I don't know what it is. I don't think it's serious. I think it's a goofy skin and pregnancy thing, but if you're when you're not pregnant, if it's still there, we should get you to see a real doctor uh, and let them look at it. That's sort of the extent of my skin knowledge. It, skin is a tricky one, and uh, I I enjoy getting to do a little bit in family medicine, but we rely so heavily on our dermatology colleagues, and so. Thomas, as much as we would love to just go on making jokes about dermatology, this whole <laughs> I, I, show. I, I'm here to be made fun of. I'm, I'm good with that. <laughs> no, you uh, you have a very, a very good story that I'm not sure our listeners are familiar with. So maybe to kind of kick the ball off here, tell us, how did you grow up to be a dermatologist? You could have been anything. You know, in medical school, I wanted to be what you are, Andrew, a family physician, until I realized that my love of family medicine was really the people who were the doctors. I really liked all the family doctors I met, but when I had to do what they did, it wasn't so fun. So in med school, I was kind of lost. And But one of the things I knew I didn't want to do in medical school was dermatology <laughs> because I had three horrible experiences on my dermatology rotation. One with a doctor who told me when I was asked a question at a patient's bedside, students do not ask questions. Well, that kind of deflated me. <laughs> Secondly, when the head of the department asked me if I'd like to learn how to do a hair pluck, I said, sure. He sat me down. He plucked out 60 of my hairs, showed them to me in a rubber-tipped hemostat, and walked off. And that was it. <laughs> and then I found out those hair samples showed up in a child's junior high science project on hair plucks. Oh, wow. And then finally, whenever I was looking for the resident I was following as a medical student, I was told uh, when I couldn't find him, oh, he's probably in the restroom reading the Wall Street Journal to see how his stocks are doing. So after medical school, that was on the bottom of my list. But God has a way of bringing things to the top of your list that you didn't think about. So in my internship, my first two months were supposed to be spent in obstetrics and gynecology. It was a transitional internship for those of us who didn't know what we wanted to be when we grew up. And when I was told by the head of the department that you can't come play in our reindeer games because you won't prescribe contraceptives or help do sterilization, I had two months where they had to give me something to do. So the first month they gave me general surgery, the hardest rotation in the hospital time-wise. And after they found out that I wasn't a troublemaker and asked me if I wanted to become a general surgeon, they said, hey, you got the second month. What do you want to do? You can do anything you want. I'm like, really? Something where I can sleep? So I asked the other doctors who had been out in the army doing troop medical clinic sick call care, what do you wish you had known? And they said, oh, we saw stuff on the skin all the time, didn't know what the heck it was. You should do a month of dermatology. So I did a month of dermatology. And in that clinic was a total gem of a man, Dr. Marshall Gwill, now at Dartmouth. He was a colonel in the army, and he took me under his wing, gave me a book to read. I read it faithfully every night. He showed me one-on-one -on -one at lunchtime different pictures of things and helped, you know, let me guess what they were. I was usually wrong. But about two weeks into this four-week rotation, he did something no one else had ever done. He said, Tom, 
I think you should consider dermatology. You'd be a good dermatologist. Hmm. And my life changed. And I realized I really do like this. And so there you have it. Now, do you think you liked him? Or did you, did you like dermatology? Or it was both? both because I loved what I was doing. Because I'm a, I remember my um, fellowship director in Mohs surgery was an internist before I was a dermatologist. And he said he was tired of stories. And in dermatology, you don't need to listen to a lot of stories. You just <laughs> look, you know what it is, and you act. And that really appealed to my personality. But I was getting to see, you know, all ages, kids, you know, teens, adults, older adults. I was mm. getting to learn how to read things under the microscope, do little procedures to read under the microscope, did little <laughs> procedures on the skin, do bigger procedures on the skin, prescribe things so people got better. They saw they were better and they were thankful. That was all really uplifting to me. So it was actually both. Both. It's funny. I mean, if somebody, if our listeners came to me and said, my child or my niece or nephew or, you know, wants maybe to go into medicine, who would you introduce them to? I'd say find somebody you think is a great person. Forget the specialty. Yes. Um, because they'll probably fall in love, so to speak, with that person and then maybe want to pursue medicine as a result. But if the if the child says, oh, I want to be a pediatrician, then trying to find them a pediatrician, I'd find them a great mentor and let them get hooked on that first. But with you, it was both, which is really well, pretty. Well, it had to be to turn me away from the negative experience I'd had before. Right. Yeah, interesting. But, wow. but God knew what he was doing. And if I hadn't tried to be a faithful Catholic, I never would have discovered it. Now, I was a pariah for the rest of the year in my internship <laughs> because that first two months, there were supposed to be four of us residents taking every fourth night call. You do the math. Every third night calls is a lot worse than every fourth night. Yikes. So I know you're exceptionally young, but how many years <laughs> have you been taking care of people's skin now? Well, if you count when I started my residency, that would be 28 years. Wow, that's a long time. And then it begs the question, if you could roll back the tape and do it all again, you think you'd still end up as a dermatologist? I think I would. I often thought the second would be, you know, the stuff that our guest Kevin Majors does uh. with, you know, positive psychology, understanding how the mind works. But for my day job, I really enjoy what I do. Man, you know, it's it's good to hear that, too, because we've obviously interviewed a lot of people uh, on this show and most everybody really enjoys what they do. But it's hard to find that anymore with. You know, we talk about physician burnout and the yes. amount of time mm -hmm. it takes. We went through your extensive training, which is about, sounds like, three times longer than mine. I don't know. You went through a lot of training. Uh, when in the world did you find time to get married and have seven kids? <laughs> oh, I met my wife in, uh, in medical school, and she persevered with me. And uh, we got married in our internship and uh, down in Georgia. So she moved down to Georgia after two months of my internship from Minnesota, where we'd been. And then over the years, well, I know Chris is the expert. Well, you're in family medicine. You know how that works, too, you know, having kids when there's a husband and, and wife. You know, our kids used to think it's when we hugged or something. That's for a different show. <laughs> That's for a different show. Yes, we've got that in the works. Uh, so, no, just been blessed with seven kids, and we're quite thankful. Man, that's very good. Well, now, as a dermatologist, I know one of the things a lot of people ask is, show us behind the curtain. What is your typical day, week like? When you're not on your boat or playing golf, what do you do? I don't have a boat. I get seasick <laughs> in a puddle. So and golf, I, you don't I, play golf. I don't golf either. So uh, that's, yeah, most days I'm not doing those things. So if when I was doing just general dermatology or general dermatology with a little bit of the most surgery until that practice picked up, uh, a typical day would be, you know, seeing patients from 8 to 5 with an ORF at lunch. I would see usually about 7 patients an hour from 8 to 11 or 11.15 and then sc schedule a couple excisional surgery cases. And in the afternoon do the same thing about 1 to 4.15 and do a couple of excisional surgery cases. And so I would see about, you know, 50, 52 patients a day regularly. Uh, wow, that's a lot of people. It is a lot, of the, but that's it. It's uncommon that we need to listen to a long story to figure out something. Now, mm. with the complicated rashes, yeah, sometimes that's necessary. And we always have to listen to something the patient says, but most of the time it's like, yep, I know what it is. Here's what we can do. We can get you better. And that was, that was always good. But those long days are much more draining emotionally for me than what I do now. Uh, so in most surgery, I'm doing facial cancer surgery, pathology, and reconstruction. So... Like today, I had 15 cancers on 13 patients. So cut out the cancer on the nose or the ear, 
and then the lab makes me microscope slides. I check them under the microscope. If there's some left, I cut out more on the patient. When it's gone, I put them back together. And so that has a certain rhythm to it that has little built-in one, two, three-minute breaks. Plus, I get to talk to my patients while I'm operating about anything they want to talk about. So the flow of my day now, I work pretty much straight through 7.45 to 4 o'clock, you know, getting a lunch somewhere just briefly. But uh, it works, and I feel quite fulfilled after that, not quite as drained as when I was seeing all those general dermatology patients. You know, when patients, I think, and listeners sometimes hear so such high numbers of patients, they're like, how is that possible? But really, before the EMR, I would say numbers in the 40 and 50 patients a day were not uncommon for, for most doctors. That's a lot for family practice. That's amazing. And How, listeners, EMR means electronic medical record. When we used to just jot a few notes down on paper that only we could read uh, <laughs> yeah. before we started typing in the computer, right? Do, do you guys use much computer software in dermatology or is it more dictation? or? Uh, we have been using a hybrid for 20 years. So everything goes into the computer, all prescriptions are from the computer, all labs go into the computer. But we've also, to save time, been using scribes who actually write things on a sheet of paper and then that's brought into the computer. Well, next year in January, we're finally making the big jump. We just had a couple young people join the practice and all they know is computer. So we're switching over to supposedly the most user-friendly system. Uh, it's gonna be hard for those of us uh, dinosaurs but uh, we sadly have to make it. My, my biggest gripe with the system, and you probably know it better than I do, is that I don't want to ever have to look at a computer when I'm in the room with a patient. I want to be able to look at the patient. And my practice is set up so the only thing I have to look at at a computer in the, in the room is the picture of the biopsy of the patient to make sure I'm operating on the right spot. Okay. But that's the only thing I use a computer for in the room. But Tom, if we think about dermatology, general dermatology sort of across the board, sure. what's the most common reason a patient's going to seek out a dermatologist? Uh, it's usually acne, so typically oh. teenagers, uh, and then eczema or dermatitis, and then warts, and then after that skin cancers, or what is this growth on my skin? Hmm. And then do they usually come to you, uh, patients ask me this all the time, do they just look you up and come to you as a dermatologist, or are they typically referred from somebody like Andrew, their, their primary uh, care physician? It's a mixture. I would say... You know, this is just gut, you know, maybe two-thirds just come, one-third are referred for some of those common things, uh, especially if it's easier to get in with their primary care physician. They'll see their primary care doc first. And, you know, different things I've read, anywhere from 20 to 25% of chief complaints seen in family practice are skin-related. Yeah, I'd, I'd believe that, you know, just because they come up so often. And uh, like you said, it's whoever they can get in or whoever they're used to calling a lot of times. Mm -hmm. and, and I think most people, I mean, as a patient, I would say we want to know either is this serious or not serious? Or I want you to make it stop doing whatever it's doing. If it's itching really badly, right. if it hurts, I want it to stop itching. I want it to stop right. hurt. And I'm also worried, is it something serious? So I want a fast answer. Not always easy to get. No, but a lot of times we can because one of the things you learn in dermatology is you get this incredible uh, visual ability to recognize things, this pattern recognition. And they've done these studies where they'll flash on a screen for a half a second or a second these different things, cancer or not cancer, or what is this rash. And most dermatologists need no more than a second looking at many of these to be accurate. So I know I've looked patients over, you know, have, you know, doing a full body skin exam, and it might take me two or three minutes to look at everything, including through the hair. And they'll say, well, doctor, you didn't take long enough. Right. But I did. And, and it's been proven in studies and, you know, trying to help. I, I remember, in fact, it was, it was a family that we know here in town. I remember the, um, the grandfather in the family. It's like, you didn't look at me long enough. You don't know what I had. And I prescribed something for him and then came back, you know, four weeks later and then eight weeks later and it was all gone and his skin was as smooth as a baby's butt he's like yeah i guess you did know what you were looking at <laughs> yeah i think it's it's easy uh, on the side of the patient to sometimes substitute time with thoroughness or competency yeah. but especially in dermatology uh, and i think for a lot of things that's not necessarily true a lot of times you can get to the answer and you don't need the additional time to do it right now how has the pandemic changed 
the practice of dermatology or has it? I mean, all three of us have, have lived through this and tried to see patients less in the office and during the peak of the pandemic. And then we've all, to some degree or another, converted to Zoom and telemedicine. But you're a visual specialty. So has the pandemic been sort of good for you in that regard? Well, first, let's go to general dermatology. So uh, April 2020, my partners were seeing like three to six patients a week wow. in person. And so we had to rapidly switch to something we hadn't done, which was some telemedicine. And what they learned is that the quality of the videos or even the store and forward photos for telemedicine are awful. Yeah. Trying to diagnose skin things, yes, it's a visual specialty, but if the quality of the video or the photo is not good, we can't do a whole lot of good for patients. Now, people who are medication checks or, you know, the acne, you sure. don't need to see detail. Yeah, those things can be done, but we are a heavily procedure-based practice. Over half of patients who come in get a biopsy or something frozen, something express, something scraped to check under the microscope. Mm. Uh, biopsy is very common. Now, surgically, I can do virtually nothing except some post-op visits with pictures. Mm -hmm. So I operated all through the pandemic. We never stopped. Now, we did ask patients early on when we didn't know as much as we do now, you know, if you were over 80, had certain conditions not to come in. But we just kept on operating. I mean, I remember in the pandemic, I operated on a woman born in the last influenza pandemic of 1918 and 19. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, she had a rapidly growing squamous cell cancer, which can spread, can lead to death. She came in on a gurney, operated on her, she left, healed, did fine. She hmm. was Interesting. I mean, in my specialty telemedicine, patients are sending me a lot of pictures of a lot of things they never sent before, <laughs> um, both good and bad. If anybody hacks into my phone, there's going to be some explaining to do. But, you know, post-op incisions, or is this infected? Yes. Or a picture of something with a baby, is this normal? I don't think I got that pre-pandemic, but now we get that a lot. How about you, Andrew? I'm guessing you do. You know, we, we definitely do, and it, it's always challenging because there's, especially kind of when it's when there's not a process, we're all making processes for this. Mm -hmm. When there's not a process, there's uh, legal and standard of care ramifications. Mm. I remember seeing one patient, we did a lot of telehealth for a while there. Uh, I remember seeing one patient for a rash and I, I completely agree with the picture quality. I said, okay, uh, is it bumpy? Uh, <laughs> I cannot visually tell. I see maybe a color change, but I mean, you really can't do so much of the, you know, you feel it, you look closely. Right. Oh, that's another thing in dermatology I never would have thought beforehand. I, I learned to develop uh, a sense of different textures to yeah. tell what some rashes are. It's amazing how there is a difference that is helpful. Well, all the senses are necessary. So that's probably a good segue. I mean, you and I have been doing this about the same number of years in our mm -hmm. respective specialties. What's changed in dermatology, would you say? Uh, the biggest change in dermatology is the advent of new treatments, new targeted treatments, where the generic medicine ends in the words, uh, letters MAB for monoclonal antibody. Mm -hmm. They have revolutionized the treatment of psoriasis and really bad atopic, atopic dermatitis or eczema. Wow. Well, with that, let's take a break, listeners. We'll be back after the break with Dr. Thomas McGovern talking all things skin and dermatology here on Dr. Doctor. And we're back with Dr. Doctor and our very own Dr. Tom McGovern talking about all things dermatology. You know, Tom, a, a question that I don't know if anybody's ever asked you, but uh, why, why should I care if my dermatologist is Catholic? Well, for most things, it probably doesn't matter as long as they're treating you as a, a good human being and they know what they're doing professionally. They don't need to be Catholic. But the Catholic faith has intersected in some small ways in my specialty. For instance, for really bad acne, uh, there's a medicine known as isotretinoin. And that medicine is known to cause severe birth defects in about a quarter of women who take it unknowingly when they're pregnant. Now, in interest of our listeners, that's Accutane, right? Is the Accutane is no longer around. Yeah. It hasn't been made for a while, but that was the brand name. Mm. Now there are some other companies making as generics under other names. So, But uh, yes, that was known as Accutane, correct. And how, how? tell us the implications of that. Well, because of the number of 
of birth defects, there's this whole process that has to be gone through before giving it to any woman, actually even a man. But a woman has to have a pregnancy test done before starting and then every month while on it, but also has to agree to go on two forms of contraceptives, although they still seem to be allowing abstinence as an option, uh, which was the only way I ever prescribed it to women. Uh, but then I got to thinking a lot of women who desire to be abstinent often end up having moments of weakness. And I decided I didn't want to ever be somebody that, you know, indirectly helped contribute to, you know, a bad outcome in a pregnancy. And then I discovered something wonderful, a drug called spironolactone. Yeah. So I, in severe acne, I would use Accutane isotretinoin in male patients because there wasn't you know that problem with pregnancy there. But spironolactone is a drug that blocks androgen or testosterone receptors, so you wouldn't want to give it to a man because you could feminize him. But in women, it was like a home run for even the worst acne cases without the risk of birth defects. So thankfully, and even though this wasn't written about much 25 years ago, finally in the last one or two years, there are finally these huge studies showing it is safe, it is incredibly effective, which I learned back in 1997 when I was at Irwin Army Community Hospital, Fort Riley, Kansas. I had this 42-year-old nurse, had failed Accutane multiple times, it was a woman, and I started her on spironolactone, and within two months, she was in my office. I thought I was being mugged. She was hugging me because for the first time in her adult <laughs> life, she was clear. And after that, for women that didn't respond to other forms of treatment, spironolactone, it is wonderful. It helps with excessive hair growth on the face. It reduces oiliness, and it helps the acne. But you know, Tom, I disagree with your statement in a regard that it doesn't matter if your dermatologist is an authentic Catholic because of that very reason. So, you know, I get a lot of referrals of young girls and their moms, and their moms will say, well, it's a safe referral, meaning I'm not going to put them on birth control pills, and the mom knows that. And the mom will say, we went to our dermatologist, ah, yes. and all they said was nothing will help your acne but birth control pills, and we didn't want to do that. So having a dermatologist that understands the physiology yes. uh, as well as the theology of not wanting a young woman to be on artificial hormones, I would argue it doesn't have to be Catholic. It's just good medicine. Uh, but it sure is nice to be able to appreciate that that's not what this young woman needs. Right. Even though there is evidence that the hormones and oral contraceptives can help acne, yeah. the benefit is less than other available medicines, mm. and the side effects are worse. So even apart from the moral question, it's not even, to me, a good medical option, because spironolactone does the same thing mm. as those other things, but does it better and with less side effects. Yeah, much less risks and just as well or and better. It's, and it's pretty inexpensive too. Yeah, well said. So it does matter. And I think you told me once many, many years ago, there were all these reasons. And I remember one of my favorites was you said, uh, when your dermatologist is doing your total body skin exam and they see that funny little leather necklace you're wearing, they won't make a joke about it and ask you what it is. <laughs> the That's right, we won't do it. We'll actually ask you to take it off so it doesn't accidentally obscure anything. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know if you guys heard that, but I just heard the listener in their car in New Mexico, I think, and they just said, hey, the whole reason I tuned in was because of acne. Um, <laughs> a, apart from spironolactone and Accutane, uh, obviously those are, are big ones for heavy acne. For pretty much all of us when you're 16, what would be some good options, Tom, for people to try at home before they go see their doctor? Well, acne is caused by you know the the skin's reaction to um, to male type hormones, and and women and girls make um, testosterone like hormones, androgens, and so it stimulates production in the hair follicles of more oil, and the oil in the dead skin makes this little plug, and behind this plug, these bacteria called Cutibacterium, which has changed its name to the third name since I've been in dermatology, <laughs> Cutibacterium, and then that leads to inflammation. So your acne, you want to treat the plug pour if you can, the oil production if you can, the bacteria if you can, and the inflammation. So each of the treatments is targeted at at least one of those things. So if you just have whiteheads and blackheads, that's just you know the plugged pour, then you can get by with one medicine. 
And that medicine would be a retinoid. Those would be the drugs such as Retin-A, such as Differin gel, such as Tazeratine, and a number of generics and other knockoffs. They're vitamin A derivatives. Once a day, that'll slowly help those. And some of that's over the counter? Yeah, the uh, Differin is now under, over the counter, which probably has a few less side effects, uh, less irritation than the other ones. And you can just use that, you know, you uh, wash your face, just dry it lightly at night, pea-sized drops, spread it over the whole face at night. You might get a little bit of tenderness and redness, but that'll slowly go down. And if you're gonna, if you're really sensitive to those, you can put on a moisturizer beforehand. I like moisturizers that contain ceramides, C-E-R-A-M-I-D-E-S. There's actually um, one product out there called CeraVe, C-E-R-A-V-E. I don't have stock in it, uh, but it's relatively inexpensive. A thin layer of this, then the medicine if you're sensitive. Uh, but then there's acne where you get red bumps and pimples. So you've got inflammation present there. So those retinoids, those vitamin A derivatives, have some anti-inflammation properties, but usually in there you've also got bacteria growing. And the best thing you can put on your face to kill the bacteria and acne, benzoyl peroxide, mm. also over-the-counter. So much of acne can be controlled with two over-the-counter topicals. Um, a retinoid like adapalene, that's the generic name of Differin, uh, as well as benzoyl peroxide like 5%. And 10% is not better than 5% at anything except causing more redness. So, Tom, you said slowly get better a second ago. Exactly. Give us a time frame. How long Great should question. a parent be waiting? I learned this a long time ago. I tell, told, when I saw acne patients, all of them, 12-week, 3-month minimum mm. before deciding to change a medicine unless you're having a nasty side effect. You tell me about the side effect, we'll see if we can work through it or switch you to something. But I don't want to make an evaluation because the studies show that on average people are 50% or more better after 12 months. Otherwise, if you try to switch after a month, they're going to switch off of things that might have worked and they're going to lose hope that anything will work. Right. So then... Who needs to get an appointment and get in to see a dermatologist? Well, if they aren't able to get it better on their own, then they should see somebody who knows how to treat acne. And then for people who have inflammatory acne that isn't responding to both the, uh, the topical vitamin A derivative and the benzoyl peroxide, sometimes certain antibiotics will be added, but the antibiotics are not used because they kill the bacteria. They actually do a poor job of that compared to the benzoyl peroxide. They're used because some of them have anti-inflammation properties, uh. mainly the tetracycline family, like doxycycline and minocycline. Sometimes I've seen people give certain sulfa ones, like Bactrim or Septra, uh, but those are the ones. And now there's a new low dose of doxycycline. It's so low dose, it doesn't kill bacteria, but it's still anti-inflammatory. But the studies also show that after six months of using just topicals, or six months where the first three months you had one of those pills, and then the next three months you didn't, by six months, everyone's at the same place. You might get there a little faster with an initial three months of adding an oral antibiotic. Wow, that sounds like great advice. I mean, the hardest thing is to be patient when you have a 16-year-old who's upset two weeks before prom and, and they want to look better. It's not going to happen in two weeks. Well, it? then you can give the prom pack. <laughs> and, and the prom pack would be a I've short... I've never heard of this one. <laughs> oh, it's just a short course of prednisone. Oh, uh, really? Now, if you again, get inflammation, right? Right. So prednisone, an oral steroid, is relatively safe in, in short courses. Uh, it's what's given, you know, sometimes for bad cases of poison ivy rash. Uh, but you could do that, and within several days, the acne goes away, but you can't stay on it long term. Because one of the side effects from being on steroids a long time is steroid-induced acne. Ooh, that's no bueno. Now, what about UV radiation, the sun? You know, we've got our trivia question cooking in the minds of all of yes, our listeners. Yes, we do. But how many times have we heard that, you know, the sun and tanning beds and things like that are good for acne? True or false? Uh, we've heard that, and there are some anti-inflammatory um, effects of ultraviolet light. No doubt about it. That's why, for years, it was one of the mainstay treatments for widespread psoriasis or, or widespread eczema. So there, there is a truth there that it reduces uh, swelling. Oftentimes I used to say that you can't tell the redness of your acne because your tanning has caused the redness to fill in the in-between. Uh, so it, it, there might be a small benefit, but the, you know, the side effects of not only increased skin cancer down the road, but wrinkling, the, the, you know, the side effects of wrinkling are huge with tanning beds. We'll get into more with the answer to the trivia question. Oh, we can well, hardly wait. And you, you had mentioned <laughs> skin cancer. I, I think a lot of people are thinking, you know, we got to talk about this as well. Uh, 
people all worry about skin cancer because uh, as I talk to folks about, they have a sample size of one person. <laughs> and usually like these three moles uh, that my wife noticed, you know, uh, what should people look for and who actually needs a skin check? Ooh, that's an excellent question because what we used to cover on the show regularly, the USPSTF. That's right. <laughs> the right. United States Preventive Services Task Force or Screening Task Force uh, does not recommend routine skin cancer screening of all adults, and, and I agree with that. Uh, but there are over 5.5 million skin cancers a year in the United States, about a 2 to 1 ratio of basal cell and squamous cell cancer. And then there's another 200,000 melanomas. Half of those invade through the top layer of your skin and half don't. So... Um, who should see if you've got, you know, if you're over 30, 35, and you're develop, you've got a, a growth, a sore that doesn't heal within a month. I, I think people should be seen. If you have a strong family history of skin cancer, in you know parents, you know, and you've got growths, you don't know what they are, you know, be seen. If you know, and then there's, you know, we talk about the ABCDs of, uh, of brown or black spots or of weird moles, and uh, you know, so if you've got a spot that's you know, asymmetrical, one half doesn't look like the other. The borders are irregular like teeth. Uh, colors are multiple, especially shades of brown and black mixed in with colors of the flag, red, white, and blue. Diameters of pencil eraser size are bigger. Uh, and E, if it's evolving, if it's changing, you know, we should not develop new moles after around the age of 35. Hmm. And in fact, moles often disappear and lose their color after that age. So those are some of the rules I give to my patients. Man, that's great. So that those are things to kind of think about, especially if that's a question on your mind. And I, I don't know if you get this as often as I do, but I would say maybe after check out this mole, the next most common thing people talk to me about with skin is keratosis pilaris. <laughs> I, I don't know if you ever Kazunte. get anybody, you know. <laughs> Tell, tell us about that. Yeah, keratosis pilaris often runs around with atopic dermatitis and um, hay fever, seasonal allergies. Uh, as well as uh, asthma. So those three things can go together, but what often goes together is keratosis pilaris. Keratosis just means scaling on the skin. Pilaris is anything referring to hair. So you've got these little bumps where there are hair follicles, and at the center of each bump is, is a tiny hair. And it typically happens on the back side of the arms, just below the shoulder, and on the front or top of the thighs, and sometimes on the buttocks. Uh, and it's more common when the humidity is low. So the listeners in New Mexico are probably more likely to get it than those who live around Houston or Orlando or Daytona Beach. And it really responds well typically to uh, alpha hydroxy acids, which you can buy over the counter. Usually 12% strength is enough. One of the brand names is uh, Lachhydrin or the generic would be ammonium lactate. And putting that on twice a day is usually really good for that. There are also some salicylic acid containing lotions and creams that are, are good to help it. Usually it doesn't mean anything bad, but it, it's like you're running your hand almost on a cheese grater when you mm -hmm. run your fingers over that. I, I see so many people who are worried about it, lar largely cosmetic, right. but uh, it's, it's hard to Google. And it's hard to fix. Because you have to spell it. And so then people people that show up with it. So I think a lot of listeners will appreciate that. Yeah, you know, um, another. I think that's a good segue, thinking about common questions that come up. Uh, I get asked all the time when I'm explaining surgery to somebody, are you going to use a laser for this? You know, we seem to have, as a society, an infatuation with laser technology, I guess because of maybe James Bond movies or something. But tell us about lasers and dermatology. Yes, they think laser equals magic, and they don't. But in some cases, they seem to work like magic. So lasers work because you have a specific wavelength of light. We don't have all the wavelengths like in sunlight. We just have one particular one, one very specific color of blue or red or green, for instance. And that color is absorbed by something specific in the skin. So the really long wavelengths that are you know, beyond visible light, well, they're absorbed by water. So that would be your carbon dioxide laser. So if you want to have laser resurfacing, then the laser energy is absorbed by water. And depending on how much energy you use, it will take off so much layer of skin at a time. You only want someone to do that for cosmetic purposes like acne scars, for instance, if they're really experienced. And that's a good thing to take off layers of skin. That's okay. Right. So then it will reheal uh, uh, more smoothly. But not scar because it's superficial. If it's superficial enough, correct. Right. Then you've got 
your red things on the skin and they're red because of the hemoglobin that's in blood vessels so sometimes people have red spots on the skin they want to get rid of little blood vessels uh, just redness around some area and so there are other wavelengths of lasers around 585 595 nanometers and that light green is absorbed by anything red but the rest of the skin ignores it so when they're absorbed they basically superheat those blood vessels and they immediately scar and go away mm. and it's like right afterwards now some people have a little bit of bruising but when that goes away the redness of those little vessels are gone then there are the lasers that put out wavelengths of light that are absorbed by things that are brown or black so when you want to get rid of brown spots, those don't work as well as the red spot lasers, but those are the ones that are used for brown spots and for hair removal, which is probably the number one reason people come to our practice for laser treatment, is to get rid of hair in unwanted areas. Mm -hmm. And the laser is absorbed by the pigment in the hairs, so it won't work for white hairs. Oh, and then it man. destroys those hairs, they don't grow back. Correct. Uh. If, okay, now, no, Hairs are always going through a life cycle. So a hair grows through a growing phase, a resting phase, and a detaching phase. So up to half the hairs on body hair, only 10% of the hairs on your scalp, but at any one time, half the hairs on your body, so say it's chin area, you know, upper lip for a woman, half of those are in resting phase or in you know, the phase where they release. They're not going to be permanently damaged. You've got to get the hairs when they are in their growing phase. So each time you use the laser, you'll permanently get rid of half of the hairs. So one treatment, half are gone, two treatments, three quarters, uh, three treatments, seven eighths, et cetera. So again, be patient. Right. Wow, interesting. And, and how does that work for like, uh, we hear sometimes about tattoo removal. Yes. Uh, again, different colors are absorbed by different wavelengths of light. The hardest color, if you think you might ever have tattoo regret, the color to avoid, orange not a good laser to get rid of orange <laughs> can get rid of just about all the other colors but orange and so then you have to have somebody who has multiple lasers which are not inexpensive and where the light penetrates deep enough to get to that tattoo pigment and then what happens is it causes inflammation around them and little uh, white blood cells called macrophages come and gobble up those pigments and take them away sometimes to your lymph nodes does it actually <laughs> work though can tattoos be essentially removed by lasers Yes, especially the, the classic India ink colored ones, you know, kind of the deep blue black. Those are the ones that respond by far the best mm. to laser for removal. Wow, that's fascinating. Man, that's really cool. I know I, I'm always intrigued by the, the laser technology. You know, Tom, we've, we've talked a lot of things about dermatology. And uh, apart from the jokes, obviously, we all know and love dermatology and dermatologists. What, what are some of the things you wish everybody knew or some of the popular misconceptions about dermatology? Popular misconceptions that we don't know anything about systemic disease, although I think that's getting a lot better. Like, for instance, we know psoriasis is really a systemic disease with an increased risk for, you know, heart disease, diabetes along with it. And it seems like, you know, every year I'm learning about more diseases that are, are systemic. Uh, I don't know. I, I used to think people had a lot of misconceptions. I think the public is, is getting better uh, educated. Um, but, you know, if we were a panel and we were trying to pitch a room full of medical students for our respective specialties, what would your pitch be for dermatology? It, it's incredibly satisfying because I, if you like to know a lot of information and be able to apply it immediately in the room to see results either immediately or within weeks or a few months in happy patients, it's dermatology. It's, it's breadth. It's breadth of diseases related to every organ it's breadth of age from newborns to you know 100 and beyond we get to do pathology because we all have to learn how to read our microscope slides it's surgery surgical uh, minor and bigger procedures as well as practicing medicine and more than any other specialty we get to experiment with the use of drugs why do we get to do that not personally but because there are very few derm diseases that have fda fda approved indications so dermatologists are the masters of looking at what are all the different drugs available and what could possibly help these challenging patients so that's also a lot of fun well it makes me want to go back and be a dermatologist well you know 
know, what's the supply chain look like for dermatology as a specialty? Uh, are there plenty of young medical students wanting to pursue dermatology? It's typically among the hardest specialties to get into, so there are far more than enough. The problem is there are not enough training programs because we could use twice as many new dermatologists a year as we're getting. Wow. Interesting. Why do you think that is? Why are there not more programs? Because funding is related to Medicare mm. and uh, in and hospital usage. Dermatologists aren't in the hospital as much, so Medicare isn't as concerned about paying money to have training programs for dermatologists because uh. it's an outpatient specialty primarily. Tom, one of the things, as you know, we always like to ask people as we wind down the interview is, you know, what kind of things do you want listeners to, to leave with and what kind of resources? If, if someone's going to go and Google keratosis pilaris, uh, we can spell it out for you in the show notes. But what resources would be a good place? The American Academy of Dermatology has an excellent patient website. When you go to aad.org, there's both a physician and a patient portal. Go to the patient portal. Also for skin cancer, Skin Cancer Foundation has excellent. And my own college, American College of Mohs Surgery, Mohs is M-O-H-S. Just go to mohscollege.org. They also have a patient portal. Well, Tom and Andrew, we're going to have to leave it there for this exciting skin-tingling episode uh, of Dr. Dr. Dune with all things dermatology. We'll be right back after the break with the answer to the medical trivia question on Dr. Dr. And we're back with Dr. Doctor and the answer to the medical trivia question. The question category is wrinkles. It takes an hour of sun exposure to get a sunburn in you. So if it takes that 60 minutes, how long does it take for the same sunlight to start causing irreversible wrinkling of your skin? Okay, now this is depressing. The answer is 36 seconds. Half a minute or 1% of the time it takes to get a sunburn, you can be getting damage that causes permanent wrinkles. That's a little frightening. And, and that's why the number one tenet of healthy skin care is limit your exposure to the ultraviolet light of the sun. If there was only one thing you could do to look good, that would be it. Think of women like the turn of the century around 1900 who lived down south and had the best looking skin. What did they wear? <laughs> they, they covered up and they stayed out of the sun, didn't they? Right, and they had these big sun bonnets. That was a southern thing. Yeah. And if you think about it, you know, Americans who live in the South are kind of outliers in the world. Where else in the world do people that live the closest to the equator expose most of their skin to the sun? But Tom, you're barking up a tough tree there because culturally, at least in America, in the Western Hemisphere, we love the look of a freshly tanned person, don't we? But you know, this for me is a win-win situation <laughs> because either I win by having people have better, healthier skin, or it's a winning situation because I have plenty of skin cancer patients to operate on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was always gonna, look at the silver line. I feel like, like I have some people It may be that the wrinkle, the wrinkle twist may be more important than the cancer twist because we're so vain as a people that we don't care as much about cancer as we probably care about wrinkles. Oh, well, get this. When I used to do general dermatology and I had you know some teenage girls who were coming in for acne and I found out they used tanning beds, I would say, well, you know, that's going to make you wrinkle and look older than you really are. And I, I'll never forget this response. Oh, I'm not going to care what I look like when I get older, Doc. <laughs> How many? It, really, I just couldn't believe it. You know, Tom, I, this, this interview, I love these three-person interviews with us. I, I wonder if we could do the top three takeaways a little different today, and maybe you give us top three takeaways for general skin care. And I think, number one, you said stay out of the sun. I know a lot of people come in and they ask, what should I be doing for my skin? They sell expensive, fancy moisturizers. Do those work? What should we do? Uh, I guess the second thing, you know, thinking about people in dry climates, if you want to keep your skin moisturized, it doesn't really matter how much water you drink. Uh, and you can, you can get uh, a little bit from the water you put on your skin, but then you have to have something to seal it in. So the best thing is take warm showers, not hot. Don't stay in the tub longer than 10 or 15 minutes, otherwise it damages the skin's ability to hold onto the skin. So if you want it to be nice and moist, you know, put some water on it every day in the bath or shower. It should be warm, not hot. And then, you know, if you want to use a moisturizer, if you have dry skin, then one of the ones with ceramides that I mentioned before, or with alpha hydroxy acids, a lower concentration of ammonium lactate uh, would be good. Uh, the third thing, uh, you know, soap. The only areas you need to soap hairy and oily areas of the body. The rest of it, you're helping remove moisture from your skin. So, you know, under the arms, in the groins, your head and face. Other than that, most people don't need soap, you know, washing your hands after you use the restroom. But other than that, 
not so much. Well, you wow, heard that's it right groundbreaking here. right there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it right here on Dr. Doctor. Bathe less, stay indoors more, and use a better moisturizer. Oh, thanks, Chris. Well, yeah, that's good. Yeah, and the bathroom thing, I, I think we got to clarify, too, with the skin care versus killing the germs, you right. know, getting the germs off, obviously, still a little bit. Right, but. and I actually use um, alcohol uh, sanitizer on my hands most of the day doing surgery because it's less damaging to the skin than frequent soap and water. But to reduce the damage of soap and water, use cold water. That way the soap will clean off what's on the surface, but the heat won't damage the skin's ability to hold on to moisture. What is there anything to, to think about with good hand sanitizers? Some of them leave a film on your skin. Sometimes they make you feel extra dry. Any yeah, secrets I, I there? I just have to, you know, it's you have to experiment and see which ones feel best. I have to do the same thing. Okay. I still have some leftover ones from COVID, and they all smell like alcohol that you would not put on your skin. And so it's kind of, <laughs> you got to clarify that. But we've this is everything dermatology. I don't know. Chris, what else do you have? Any other I, questions for Tom? I think we've probably just skinned the surface. Er, uh, er, but it's, er, been, er. <laughs> it's been a great discussion of all things dermatology. We certainly appreciate you inviting us into your car or your headphones or wherever you listen to Dr. Doctor for another great discussion with our great colleague, Dr. Thomas McGovern. Well, I'd like to th thank Chris and Andrew for the opportunity to th talk about uh, some things skin, definitely not all things skin, but I want to thank you for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app. And you can also find this and all of our episodes on our website, drdoctor.org. So check us out. And for those who want to dive deeper into some of the topics and not just scrape the surface of the skin, uh, check our website for bonus links and information in our post for each episode. Just click latest at the top of the main page. And also, as people are listening and you say, I really wish the doctors would cover this topic, go ahead and send that to us at our website there, and we will try and include it on a future show. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. And we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Tune in for new episodes every Friday and find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.